0: Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching new life tabernacle. Thank you and we hope you enjoy the message. Praise your holy name. We praise your holy name. Thank you Jesus. Praise the Lord everybody. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord on Wednesday night. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Can y'all hear me? Just, just, we got just a little bit of volume. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let me set my timer so that y'all don't believe it, but I do have a timer. Amen. Young people, I remember, Brother Chad may not remember. But I remember one service a few years ago, (laughs) emphasis on a few, where I had decided that I would sit in the back of the service and everything was going to be fine because, of course, y'all weren't feeling this way. I I know y'all weren't. I trust your hearts. But I was in my heart thinking I was too cool now to sit that close to the front of the church. It was time to sit in the back of the church church, and I don't know if Brother Chad remembers or not, but he was leading service, and that was the first thing that was said when church was, was uh, opened, was, Brother Mark, there's a seat right up here, <laughs> no arguments, no arguments were made, I got up, and I walked straight to the seat, and that was the last time that I picked my own seat during service, that was never going to happen again, amen, thank God for leaders that love you. Amen. We're going to the Word of the Lord tonight. As we typically do, we're going to read the Scripture as we go. So if you wouldn't mind praying with me over this, Jesus. We thank You for this opportunity in Your presence. We thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word, to learn from Your Word. Lord, I ask that You would help me to teach in a way that You can anoint. Jesus, help me to say everything that You would have me to say, nothing more, nothing less. Help me to deliver the whole counsel of God. Lord, we pray that the seed of your word would fall on good ground tonight, that we would be doers of your word and not just hearers only. In your precious name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We are in lesson seven of the book of Revelation, I believe this is the fourth of the seven churches that we are studying tonight, Thyatira is the church, where the church is located, last week we dealt with a church that compromised, or at least dealt strongly with the temptation to compromise. This church, uh, we talked, I guess, at the beginning that there is sometimes a good compromise, and then there's a bad compromise. And what they were dealing with was a bad compromise. This week, we are dealing with a liberal church. We're dealing with a church that was drunk on tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. There is a distinction just like we made last week between good compromise and bad compromise. There is a distinction that should be made between the, what I would call the old idea of tolerance and this new idea of tolerance. The old idea of tolerance would look something like we can agree to disagree. We can agree to disagree. The old idea of tolerance would suggest that we can disagree even strongly and we could argue and we can debate and then at the end of the night we can still be friends and tolerate our differences and understand that we're not going to run away from the table, we're going to still have that discussion. Now we have this new idea of tolerance. And our world is uh, eaten up with it, just drunk on it. The new idea of tolerance is that we all have to be in agreement, or it isn't tolerance. All of a sudden, it's not enough to agree to disagree and remain friends. Instead, we must accept and even celebrate someone else's. Differences, or what we would as Christians call sin. And our world lives and dies by this new idea of tolerance. And the truth is, the only thing that is tolerated today is sin. They don't really mean tolerance when they say tolerance. Righteousness, holiness are not to be tolerated. In fact, those uh, are to be opposed. And it's expected that people would oppose those things. In fact, those that believe in living, holy, and separate unto God must compromise, or in the very least, if you're not willing to compromise, you must keep your opinions that would differ with the world's opinions to yourselves. Otherwise, you will be labeled as intolerant. Chuck Swindoll, he had this to say about the culture in which we live. He said, a culture that tolerates evil calls disagreement phobia. Taking a stand is considered hate. Conviction is seen as bigoted fanaticism. Centuries-old Christian doctrine is regarded as discrimination." And that is the culture that we live in today. I couldn't have summed it up better myself. Everything must be tolerated except Christianity and genuine Christians. That's the culture, the society that we find ourselves in. And interestingly enough, this was the society that the church at Thyatira was in, and the culture that it found itself in. It was a culture eaten up with that idea of tolerance, tolerance for everything except for the church. Today, we see the same thing happening that happened to the church at Thyatira. The the church at Thyatira allowed that system that was in the world, that spirit of tolerating everything but the right thing, into the church, and it started to corrupt the church. And we see that same thing happening today. Ungodly ideologies creeping into the church and creating strongholds. And it's not the will of God. Satan has confounded many into fearing being seen as intolerant greater than fearing being in error. There are Christians today that are more afraid of having someone point a finger at them and tell them that they are intolerant or they are bigoted or they are hateful than they are afraid that the Lord would look down on them and say, you are in error and you are wrong and you are not in the truth. That is a very dangerous place to be in. Never, ever, ever should we fear the world and what men can do to us more than we fear God and God's opinion of us. Amen. And yet we live in this world, and that idea of tolerance, we see it creeping further and further into the church. Before we go any further tonight and get into the letter that's written to Thyatira, Let's examine the city and then the church. The city of Thyatira was 40 miles southeast of Pergamos. So the postman, if you will, the one delivering the letters would have dropped his letter off at Pergamos and then turned southeast and headed 40 miles to the city of Thyatira. It was an industrial city. Unlike the other cities, this city was not a large city. This city was dominated by trade guilds that's similar to unions today. They had a bunch of different guilds or unions that you had to be a part of if you were going to be successful in your particular business. This would have been considered a blue-collar town, blue-collar workers. It was difficult to make a living in that town if you were not a part of a trade guild or a part of one of those unions. But what's interesting is, in order to be a part of one of those trade guilds, one had to participate in certain pagan rites. So you can see the tension already that exists on being a Christian in that day and in that hour. And I can already hear someone in that day maybe because I can hear them saying it in this day, well, we've got to make a living. We've got to make a living. And yet I can see from the Word of God that sometimes we have to make a choice. I'd rather die for Christ than make a living in this world. If that's the sacrifice that is necessary, that's the sacrifice we have to be willing to make. And I know that hits hard tonight. But that's something that we've got to consider, and it's something we must consider the closer and closer that we get to the coming of the Lord. Here in this city of Thyatira, this blue-collar city, we find a church. And written to this church is the longest letter written to the seven churches. Interestingly, the longest letter is written to a church in one of the smallest Towns. In fact, it's one of the smallest churches of the seven. There's two things that we can identify here right at the beginning, talking about the small city and the small church in that city. The first thing is little churches matter to God. Little churches matter to God. So much so that of all of the probably thousands of churches that existed in that day, one of the seven churches that were chosen by Jesus Christ to send a direct message to by way of the Apostle John was one of the smaller churches. And today that goes counter to what we feel about churches because we believe that the bigger the church, the more pleasing to God the church is. And that's not necessarily true. If it's a small church of no more than three people, but it's three people that are faithful to God, loving His Word, loving His truth, staying committed to the Word of God, then that's a church that God is pleased with. Amen. But if it's a church of thousands and and they have thousands of people and thousands of dollars flow in and out of that church, but that church is not committed to the truth and not faithful to the Word of God, that's a church that God would not be pleased with. The point that I want to make is that God cares, God sees little churches. Little churches matter to God because God doesn't see churches uh, the way that we do as big church, small church, God sees churches as faithful church, not faithful church. That's how He examines the church. So that's the first thing that we've got to identify. The second thing that we identify is that this church, though it was small, had a big problem. So small churches are not exempt from big problems. Big problems are not just a big church issue. Big church or big problems can be small church issues. With that being said, covering the city and the church, let's dive into the letter that was written to this church. Verse number 18 of chapter 2, and it says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. First thing that we identify there is we see Jesus referring to himself one more time as the Son of God. Interestingly enough, this is the last time in the book of Revelation that that title is used to describe Jesus. It'll never be used again in the book of Revelation. Revelation. Why is that? Because after chapter 4, the sonship ends with the rapturing away of the church. The church is called out of the world. The sonship role of Jesus Christ at that point is ended, and you don't hear that term, the Son of God, anymore after that point. Jesus then, after that point, rather, the gospel is no longer mentioned. And Jesus assumes the role of judge. After the church is raptured away, Jesus takes on this role of judge. We do find, however, what is called an everlasting gospel, and it's mentioned in chapter 14, and we're going to tackle that when we get to chapter 14. The next thing that we see here, and I have tried to draw attention to this every week, but... Every church, Jesus identifies a characteristic about himself that's important for that church to remember or to know. This time, he points out two characteristics of himself. Number one, he points out his eyes as flames of fire. Again, we are confronted, and it feels like we're confronted every week with this, but we are confronted with the all-consuming, ever-penetrating gaze of Almighty God. A gaze that misses nothing. A gaze that sees everything. You cannot escape from the burning eyes of Jesus Christ. It's important to remember then that Jesus not only sees to us in the sense that He takes care of us, but Jesus also sees through us. He sees our motivations, our hearts, Desires He sees beyond our works to what motivates the work, to the behavior behind it. We look at Hebrews four and thirteen, talking about this all consuming gaze of Almighty God. The Bible says Hebrews four thirteen, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and opened under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Jesus sees everything. He sees all things. You cannot hide from His gaze. God told Samuel that men look on the outside. Samuel thought that he had found the right person, the person that was qualified to be king But God saw what Samuel could not see. Now some people will point to that and they will say, well see, the outside doesn't matter to God. That's not what the Bible says. It just says that the outside was all Samuel could see, so the outside was done well enough that it fooled even the man of God. And you can have everything together on the outside in your world and you can fool the man of God. And you can convince men and women of God that you've got it all together. But God reminds Samuel, I see, sir, what you do not see. I see further. I can see through the works to a heart that is either committed or uncommitted to my way. Jesus sees everything. And so this is a sobering thought. And he reminds the church at Thyatira, and we're going to see why later. That Jesus sees everything. The next thing is characteristic that he points out is that he's got feet like fine brass. This speaks to Jesus' qualification to judge. See, Jesus is not a God that cannot be touched with our infirmities. He's not a God that doesn't know what it's like to be tempted and to be tried. Jesus is a God that has walked through the fire of trial and temptation and yet came out on the other side unblemished and unsinful. So Jesus, by saying that He's got feet of fine brass, what He's saying is that He walked through the trial and the trial didn't hurt Him. The trial just purified Him. The trial just showed who He was, that He was really God. Amen. And so He's qualified then. He's qualified because he sees everything and because he's walked through it just like we have. He can make the statements that he makes following this verse. We read chapter or chapter 2, verse number 19 then. He says, I know thy works. And there it is again, Jesus knows. Something that we are confronted with every week. Jesus knows. He says, I know thy works. And charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. This is a commendation or an encouragement from Almighty God. He says, he's, he's writing to the church, he says, I can see that you're working. I know your works. I see the charity or the love that is in your hearts. I see your heart of service. I see your faith and your patience. I see all of that. Jesus is aware and he encourages them that he sees all of that. And not only that, but Jesus says that he sees how the last is greater than the first. What is he meaning by that? He's saying that they are not the same way they were when they started out. So he sees their works of love and of faith and of patience. But he's saying, you're greater now. Your works are greater now than what they were at the first. So what is he saying? He's saying, you're growing. I'm seeing growth. I see growth in you. And we've got to have growth in us. It's not enough... For us to, for Jesus Christ to see what he saw in us when we first become believers. But every year we ought to examine ourselves and look back and see growth and see greater love and see greater faith and see greater patience. That's the will of God. And God commends, Jesus commends the believers here at Thyatira, at least some of them, because of their works and the fact that they are growing in their walk with God. Amen. But behind this faithful, God-fearing group of believers were two other groups. One was actively engaged in wickedness. The other was tolerating wickedness. One actively engaged in it. The other tolerating it. So in this congregation at Thyatira, We've got three groups that are in the same church. You've got faithful believers that Jesus says, I know your works, I see the love that's growing, I see the faith that's growing, the patience that's growing, the service that's growing. I see all of that. And then on top of that, we've got two other groups, a group that is in wickedness and another group that is tolerating that wickedness. Let's look at verses 20 through 23. Notwithstanding, Jesus says to the church, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. So here we go. According to verse number 20, there were people in the church who tolerated this so called Jezebel. Now, before we get into the Jezebel at Thyatira, it's important that we go over who Jezebel was. Jezebel, you can find her story in 1 Kings. She was a pagan princess, a very evil. Lady, She became the first pagan princess to marry a king of Israel when she married King Ahab. This moment in Israel's history was a serious turning point away from God and towards sin. Israel from that moment forward veered decidedly towards sin. What did Jezebel do? She was involved heavily in ushering in bell worship. And not only that, she sought to destroy those that would not compromise. Jezebel was deceptive, domineering, idolatrous, scheming, and vicious. She There was no good in her. She was an evil lady that sought to corrupt the people of God and the things of God. And just like other evil uh, men and women, just like her, she didn't just she she was okay with them worshiping two gods, just not one god. And her anger and her vitriol was poured out upon those that were committed to the one God. She hated Elijah not because he was still worshiping Jehovah, but because he refused to worship Baal also. So that's the spirit that's involved with Jezebel. It's a spirit of compromise. Jezebel is a spirit, it's an evil spirit that says, it's a pluralistic spirit that says, let's worship anything and everything that makes us happy. You can worship Jesus on Sunday as long as on Monday and Tuesday you worship the sin and the pleasure of your choice. That's the spirit of Jezebel. And so we look at this church at Thyatira, and it says that there is a Jezebel there, Jezebel at Thyatira. Now, this was most likely a lady of a different name that was called Jezebel due to similarities. Amen. Uh, nobody in their right mind is going to name their daughter Jezebel. And even, even during this time, that was not a popular name. So I, I have my doubts that her name was actually Jezebel. But what I see here is a lady that uh, mirrors the Old Testament Jezebel. And so when Jesus calls her Jezebel, it immediately will draw a picture and the people will know. And imagine being there. Side note. Imagine being in the audience that Sunday as the messenger of the church, the pastor, Is reading this letter from John the Apostle that is a letter really from Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden that verse is read. Some of you are tolerating Jezebel. And no doubt immediately the tension in the room went cold red. Level red. Everybody on high alert. Nobody was looking around. Nobody was moving. And everybody wanted to look because they knew exactly where this lady was sitting with all of her followers and all of her influence inside of this church. But you know that the tension was high when Jesus points out that somebody is tolerating that Jezebel spirit that is in the church. So this lady She had similarities with Jezebel. She may have led them, some of her followers, into similar sins using similar methods. It's more than emphasized that she had led them into fornication and idolatry and those kinds of sins. What really the teaching that she Apparently drew out, she called herself a prophetess. She bullied the people, some people into following her. It's clear that she introduced teaching that was false, that it was false doctrine. And apparently part of the teaching that she taught her followers was sort of a Gnosticism, the idea that sin no longer has any effect on you that your soul is safe from sin so you can participate in certain sins and your soul will not be touched, you'll be fine, you'll be okay. And so she's influencing people inside of this church and, and with this kind of false doctrine and false teaching. And so she's got her own group, she's got her people that are participating in this with her, and then she's got another group, that are just tolerating it, that are just okay with it, that are allowing it. Then you've got the third group that's there that is not tolerating it, not allowing it. It was an interesting church to be a part of, no doubt. What happened to this lady? We read in verses 21 through 23 what happened. Jesus gave this lady time to repent. He, and always we find Jesus doing this. Jesus never brings down the hammer of judgment without first offering the mercy seat. And so He offers this lady that has influenced people out of the will of God and out of the way of righteousness and holiness, but she's still calling herself a Christian. He offers her the opportunity to repent and to get right with God. And the Bible says that she refused. Imagine that. And it's hard for us to imagine, and yet we have people that do it today. What does it look like? It looks like conviction, right? Conviction, God talking to your heart and speaking to you and laying something on your heart to repent of, but you justifying it and pushing it off, and maybe I'll do it tomorrow or maybe I'll do it next week and I'll I'll finally get rid of that. That's what that looks like until it comes to a point where your conscience is seared. And so here she is, apparently a seared conscience, no longer with any desire to hear a pull from God that says repent. She refuses, the Bible says. Because she refused, the hammer of judgment was brought down upon her. She was struck with sickness and forced to a sick bed. And what's interesting about that is... One of her sins being fornication and, and deceiving people and leading them into that kind of sexual sin, she gets struck with sickness and that place that she magnified her sin is all of a sudden the place where her judgment binds her. She's bound to that bed in sickness, the sick bed. You can see that parallel. Her followers then, so that's her judgment, her followers then were told to repent or face the same consequences. So Jesus says she's reached her limit. She refuses to repent. Hand of judgment is coming down on her. But those that are following her, the opportunity is still available. You can repent. Jesus said that this punishment, and it's interesting, was going to be a sign. Not just to the churches in that day, but to the church in every time and in every age, that God is serious about sin. He is serious about sin. He's serious about not tolerating sin. He's serious about not leading people astray into sin. And it was a serious judgment that was dealt upon this lady. And he says in his word that he wanted it to be a sign to every church into every age that God does not mess around with sin and leading people into sin. Jesus He says, searches the reins and the heart, and he tries the motive. He sees what others don't, and if there is no repentance, then judgment is coming. And we live in a world where Jesus, his mercy is so strong and it's so good, and we're thankful for it. But what happens is mercy causes slow judgment sometimes, and we confuse slow judgment with no judgment. And the truth is, though his judgment is slow, his judgment is sure. And you can take it to the bank that if you have sinned that you have not repented of, you may not face the judgment tomorrow or the next day or the next day, but eventually whether in this life or the next life, there will be a judgment for the sin because God is serious about sin and you're not hiding it from Him. We think too many times that because we can fool people, that we have actually fooled God. You have not fooled God. He sees everything and He sees the motive that's in your heart. And that's why when you go to God, it's best that you just say, God, search my heart. Find everything inside of me, every wicked motivation, every wicked desire and purge me of it because there, are, there is wickedness in our heart heart that we don't even know about that would pervert us and draw us further into sin that we would have never thought about there are things in our heart that draws us astray, motives and hidden motivations and we've got to ask God to purify that Every time we do something for God, there might be that, that little temptation to take the glory out of it. You may, have, you may have witnessed to somebody and all of a sudden you've got that temptation inside of your head that says, well, I'm something, I did that. Or maybe I'm up here teaching from the word of the Lord and that temptation would come and say, well, you must be something because you're behind the pulpit. Or maybe you really, you decided to really let go in church and really worship God and, and that, that, that voice inside of your head is thinking, I'm better because I'm the one up here really letting go. And at the same time, you're doing something right. You've got the impure motive inside of your heart that is pulling you away from the right thing that you're doing. You've got to ask God, God, get inside and purify my motive. It's right to worship, and it's right to teach God's Word, and it's right to witness. But we want to make sure that God gets the glory. That God gets the glory out of the sermon. That God gets the glory out of the worship. That God gets the glory out of the witnessing. Because it's not about us. It's about God and His kingdom and His glory. When we get into that new building, it would be easy for us to look around and we think, wow, we we did this. We worked hard and we prayed hard and we worshiped hard and we gave hard. But we've got to fight that temptation and we've got to bring that before God and say, God, purify my motives. I know that if we get that new building, it was not anything that we did. It's because of you and your power and your glory. Amen. We've got to search inside of our hearts. Ask God to cleanse every hidden motive. Amen. And so when we go to God and we repent, don't just repent of the things that you know about. You repent of those hidden motives, those things that you don't know about. Jesus says, I see the reins and the hearts, and I see your motives. And if there's no repentance, judgment will come. Amen. You know, Thyatira's Jezebel, she died. She's gone. She's in the grave. I don't even know where her grave is. It may be unmarked somewhere. We don't even know her real name. But though she is in the grave, that spirit that infected her and then infected that Jezebel in the Old Testament is very alive and well today. What does it look like? It lives in those that fear intolerance and being intolerant more than they fear being in error. That spirit of Jezebel is in every Christian that is more afraid of somebody pointing a finger at them and accusing them of being a bigot or intolerant than they are of loving their neighbor enough to say, you're in sin. That's that spirit of Jezebel that has infected them. The spirit of Jezebel is in those who would justify sin instead of repenting. It's in the preacher who would rather people feel comfortable than know that God requires repentance. It's in the saint who watches their friends in sin day after day without addressing the sin, allowing them to feel saved and right with God. It's in the believer who would use grace as a license to sin and God forbid it. God forbid that we would continue in sin that grace may abound, Paul said. Because there were those who really believed that. Well, we've got the grace of God. We've got the mercy of God. So why don't we do what we want and live however we want to? And Paul said, God forbid that we should continue in sin that grace may abound. God forbid that we would trample on the mercy and the grace of God. But the spirit of Jezebel will get a hold of somebody and let you and cause you to start believing that just a little sin here and a little sin there it's no big deal we're still right with god we're still doing okay and it's a lie and it's a lie from hell and we've got to repent of that that evil motivation inside of our heart the spirit of jezebel is in every believer who would use grace as a license to sin and it's in the believer who shuns godly authority We live in a world that is against all authority. You know what? What's interesting, we're living in a country that seems like that we are more and more for government overreach and government authority and government in every part of our life and in every corner of our life. But you know what they're against? They're against a man of God and a woman of God getting up and telling them, thus saith the Lord from the word of God, we've got things backwards. We ought to let the voice of the man of God back in our life and tell the government to get back out of our life. Amen. I'm sorry for that, but that's just the way I believe. Amen. That spirit of Jezebel will get on us and cause us to get out of, out of whack with our spiritual authority. And it's not the will of God. Somebody has to have the authority in your life to point out what the Word of the Lord says and whether or not we are living up to it. Amen. Amen. How do you defeat the spirit of Jezebel? Good question. It's something that we need answered. Number one, you cannot defeat the spirit of Jezebel unless you've got humility in your life. You have to have humility. What do I mean? You have to be humble enough to know, to admit to yourself that you don't have all the answers. You have to be humble enough to admit that you need help. You have to be humble enough to admit that there's sin inside of you that you can't get rid of by yourself. You have to be humble enough to admit that maybe my motives aren't always what they seem to be. Maybe my motives aren't always pure and I need to get right with God. And without humility, that's not possible. The next thing in order to defeat a spirit of Jezebel, gotta have humility, but then you've gotta have repentance. You've got to find a place of repentance. The spirit of Jezebel and 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 every demonic spirit in this world cannot stand up against repentance. Once you start repenting and you allow the authority of the word of God into your life and you allow the blood of Jesus to do its work in your life, that hold that that spirit had over you has to let go. And it can't happen without repentance. You've got to get on your knees and you've got to repent before Almighty God. That's how you defeat spirits that attack you. The next thing, and maybe it's they're, they're all important. I don't even want to say one's more important than the other. Let's just put it on a straight line here. You've got humility, you've got repentance, and the next thing that's just as important is obedience. It's not enough to be humble. And it's not enough to repent. And those things are great and they're important. You have to have them. But the next thing you've got to have is you've got to have obedience to the Word of the Lord and to the things of God. It's not enough just to come and hear the Word of the Lord and say we're sorry. But we've got to get up and we've got to turn from our wicked ways. And we've got to walk in the way of God and in a way that pleases God. That's how you defeat that spirit of Jezebel. Let's look at verses 24 through 29 really quickly here. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already hold fast till I come. After he that overcometh and keepeth my works, unto the end. To him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. And I will give unto him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Amen. So then, there are rewards for those who resist the spirit of the age and who stay faithful. The rest of those at Thyatira that Jesus is talking to are those who did not fall into deception or tolerate false doctrine. They are told, hold on, refuse to tolerate sin and stand against deception. And we today, thousands of years later, we can learn from that Unction from Almighty God. What should we do when others around us are compromising? What should we do when other Christians around us are in sin and wickedness? What should we do when other so-called Christians are tolerating the sin and the compromise that is around us? Jesus gives three things. He says, hold on. That's the first thing, and that's important. You've got to hold on. You've got to not give up. You've got to stay committed to the Word of God even if no one else is. The next thing that you've got to do is you've got to refuse to tolerate sin. And that's the pressure of the age. That's the pressure of the moment and the hour. The pressure is to tolerate it and be okay with it and be accepting of it. But we can't do that and be pleasing to the word of the Lord, be pleasing to the Lord. So I say we've got to refuse to tolerate sin. And the next thing we've got to do is we've got to stand against deception. Refuse to tolerate sin. Hold on and stand against deception. Refuse to believe deception. And here's what happens to those that hold on, to those that refuse to tolerate sin and stand against deception. There are rewards. Rewards for staying faithful. First reward Jesus said is going to come. They will reign with Jesus. They will be given authority over the nations and will rule with an, with a rod of iron. See, that's the thing that's not talked about enough. It's not just here and then heaven. There's a thousand years that we're going to reign with Christ in between there. And it's, it's, it's what we know theologically as the millennial reign. But it's you and I, it's Christians that are reigning alongside Christ, reigning with a rod of iron. All of a sudden, the script is flipped. All of a sudden, it's not the Christians that are spat upon and beaten upon, but it's the Christians who are reigning with Christ and given authority. What a day that's going to be. The next thing, we are going to receive the morning star. Of all the promises that are given, this is the greatest. We're going to receive the morning star. Jesus is known as that bright morning star to inherit an eternity with Jesus. Sister Melanie, if you want to come to inherit an eternity with Jesus, that's the greatest reward. That's the reward that we should be seeking after and pressing for. That's the mark of the high calling of Christ Jesus. I want to be pleasing to God so that I can inherit an eternity with Jesus. You know, that's what I'm looking forward to most. I'm it's, I, the more I think about it, it's I'm, I'm looking forward to heaven, I really am. But more than streets of gold, more than a great city that's there, or the billions that are going to be there, or uh, the sea that is of glass, or the gates of pearl, more than all of that. I want to be a part of a kingdom where Jesus is King. Where we can lean on Him where justice and righteousness goes forth throughout that kingdom because the king is just and righteous. And I don't have to worry about a king being motivated by selfish motivations. I got a king that loves me. Why? Because the Bible says that he does. That's what I'm looking forward to most. That moment, that that kingdom where he's in charge, where he reigns. I wonder if you could stand. In a... Tolerant society, quote-unquote tolerant society, a society that wants to pride itself in its tolerance, tolerance of everything but righteous, righteousness and holiness. We must be a church that is committed to stand, even if we're considered intolerant, even if we are considered bigoted, even if we are considered out of step with society and what's right in society and what society deems is okay. I want to be right with the Word of God. I don't want to be that church that is so drunk on tolerance that we have nothing to stand for. You know that old saying that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for everything. And that's so true. The church that refuses to stand for something in the Word of God will end up falling for everything. And that's not what we want to be a part of. We want to be a church that stays committed to the Word of God. I wonder if we could find a place tonight and let's just recommit ourselves unto God and recommit ourselves unto just staying. Staying in His Word. Staying committed. Thank you, Jesus. I see.